Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the end of time's occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on November 10th, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Twill has been on a long summer and early fall break, but now the election is over and health law and policy is crawling out from under a rock. Uh, Twill is back. There will be some traditional Twill-like episodes, but for now we're going to be archiving some more recordings from the Public Health Law Watch series of briefings dealing with law and and COVID. Here comes the first one. I hope you enjoy it. Hello. Welcome to another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, Change Lab Solutions, and the APHA Law Section. We are here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully answer some of your questions. For more information on COVID legal response, please check out a report assessing legal response to COVID-19 at covid19policyplaybook.org. In the report, 50 national experts assess the U.S. policy response and provide recommendation on how federal, state, and local leaders can better respond to COVID-19 as well to future pandemic. I'm Abraham Gutman, a staff writer at the Philadelphia Inquirer, and I'm very excited for the conversation today between two thinkers who are coming to this conversation from different places but um, are going to search for intellectual and practical common ground. First, is Scott Burris, professor of law and the director of the Center of Public Health Law Research at Temple University. He also happens to be my former boss. And also with us is Dr. David Hyman, professor of health law and policy at Georgetown University and a Cato Institute scholar. Please use the hashtag COVID law briefing for any questions or comments in response to this brief. So let's start. Each of our guests is a co-author of a different analysis of the federal response to COVID-19. And both the COVID-19 Policy Playbook with Professor Burt uh, co-edited and the Cato's Institute case study um, that Dr. Hyman um, co-authored found that despite years of preparation and previous pandemics, the federal response to this coronavirus pandemic failed, though they've come to different recommendations on how to move forward. So to start us off, it would be great if each of you could give us a brief description of, of this failure and where we are today as cases are rising in most places in the U.S. Uh, Dr. Professor Burris, if you will start us off. Our message overall was unmute um, yes. and speak with a loud voice if you're the federal government. And unfortunately, the federal government, like me, was muted for too long, didn't have a clear message. But also, I think, and I think this may be a kind of interesting point of, of discussion today, is I think the government was too small. Um, that is to say, I think that core capacities in the bureaucracy, for example, the, the capacity to track the production and understand the market for PPE was just undeveloped, had been allowed to, to, to disappear. We didn't have enough talent and effectiveness to produce a decent test, which I think the government probably had to be the one to do, at least initially, or at least to coordinate. We didn't have, um, at the state and local level, sufficient personnel to, to launch contact tracing. We had outdated data systems. Um, we had um, the idea of cooperation between branches, but the mechanisms um, were not present. And I think that a lot of that has to do with the fact that you need to have uh, a functioning bureaucracy to take on complex bureaucratic managerial tasks. So, oh, sorry. So, uh, I, Abraham, I think I can jump in on my own on that issue. Um, so, look, I, I think, first of all, uh, Scott is a 
I think it's fair to say, full-time public health person, and I'm an occasional interloper. Uh, so you should discount accordingly uh, what I have to say. Um, second, I, I want to agree with uh, Scott on uh, a, a lot of what he said, right? The specific uh, diagnoses of the problem in the piece that I co-authored with Charlie Silver, we described COVID as a master class in government failure. Sort of everywhere you look at every level of government, you see that even though there was effort to prepare, in fact, in lots of ways, the problem was we were so busy writing plans uh, that we weren't really paying attention about how they would be implemented uh, and thinking about what could go wrong. Um, I would sound a slight dissenting note. I certainly agree that you want an effective bureaucracy, um, and there are serious issues about how adequately we're funding public health. But it's also important to recognize we had a lot of the capacity. They were just doing lots of other things. Um, and they were, you know, the, the preparation of reports was viewed as an end in itself. Nobody was sounding a fire alarm that the strategic national supply had been depleted and nobody cared enough across administrations, right? The Trump administration should get its share of blame um, and so should Congress and so should the Obama administration. This is a problem that spans administrations. There's plenty of blame to go around here um, and you can find fault with everything that pretty much any branch of government has done. So I wonder I wonder if, you know, as a journalist, can't bury the lead and there's big news from this week that there was an election and there will be a new administration come January 21st. And I wonder, both of, both of the reports, again, from maybe different perspectives on some things and, and, and some things like the analysis paralysis uh, uh, find common ground, but how much can one administration, even if they read these reports that he did advice, can change um, so that we would have a functioning and appropriate federal response if it's, you know, blame that goes across, you know, generation and culture in a sense? That strikes me as a kind of nihilistic um, question in the sense that, you know, I would like to I would like to get to a place where we all agree that we are entitled to good government, that when we pay our taxes and when we elect people, they can have opinions, they can have ideologies, they can have preferences, but they have to actually make things work. Like that is a big chunk of their job. And if they're not doing that, that's a big problem. Whereas I feel there's so much resignation that, you know, there's a great, I'm, I'm really afraid this will just be, you know, sort of exhibit, you know, double Z in the case that we just have to forget about it. We're on our own. Government can't help. And you know, I think this is also a perfect example of why you need government. There are just things that the private sector and individuals cannot do on their own. So, you know, my view is the, the Biden administration can, um, and in cooperation with Congress and governors and state legislatures, must um, start to, I mean, David's point is good, better management, more attention to the ball, um, less make work kind of behavior, less satisfaction with writing plans as an end in itself. That's part of it. Um, better funding, maybe more. I mean, we've lost a lot of talent. A lot of really good people over the years have gotten sick and tired of worse working conditions, more and more political interference with public health, more and more mendacity and mundanity, um, less agency for creative work. I mean, I think we have to value the civil service as a place where there's supposed to be creativity, um, where there should be a little less risk, risk aversion, um, where there should be a little less, a little more support for innovation. Um, and then, of course, you, you turn to the fact that this is a coordinating job, right? So there's the whole private sector and there's the whole academic sector and, you know, et cetera. And maybe I'll hand it over to David at that point. Yeah, I, I want to echo that similar to the first question. Uh, I think, again, there's lots of common ground. Uh, it's very hard to get good people to devote their careers to government service. It's very hard to keep them in government service, especially when uh, excellent performance is not rewarded 
commensurate with what it should be, and bad performance is not punished commensurate with what it should be. I, I think the broader dynamic that it's important to keep in mind is visible public failure when you're a government agency rarely results in termination of the agency. It typically results in the top person maybe losing their job and a large increase in the budget for that entity so it will do a better job going forward, which is fundamentally crazy uh, as a way of creating the right set of incentives. I also think it's important to recognize Congress uh, complicates matters immensely because it delegates broad responsibility to the bureaucracy. And then when there's the slightest pushback, they basically pull the leash uh, and subject you know, agency heads to withering cross-examine and oversight hearing. And that's not a recipe for you know <clears throat> a uh, enthusiastic workforce to take on new problems and to solve old problems, right? The, the joke used to be the Food and Drug Administration only had two speeds, too fast and too slow. And either of them would result in oversight hearings, but nobody rewards them for being just right. So because there's a too much agreement in this conversation, let, let's move to something that I know you both don't exactly see eye to eye. One of the most debated issues in America is healthcare. And, and kind of both the two reports say the healthcare we have right now is not totally adequate. But one calls for extension of the bureaucracy, the, the COVID playbook, and, and the other, and, and to increase health budgets, and the other, the Cato assessment, the case study, and calls to resist, reject the effort for Medicare for All. So um, Dr. Heyman, maybe starting with you, um, can you give me the, the quick diagnosis of the, the problem with healthcare that we have today, the elevator pitch for that, and then um, why is it that, like maybe said before, that more money, more budget extension of the bureaucracy is not the solution? Um, so anybody who's prepared to give you an elevator pitch on the problems with the American healthcare system should not be trusted anywhere near reform of the healthcare system, because it's a gigantic, complicated system that does some things extraordinarily well, and lots of other things so awful as to defy belief. Um, I mean, you get better customer service uh, delivered at the average McDonald's by people who are maybe high school graduates compared to the best hospitals in the United States, right? Where you're lucky if you can find your way to the doctor's office without asking four times, let alone try and understand the bills. Um, so that I think, you know, you, you should start with some appropriate humility, um, which Scott is now saying, gee, I never knew David to be humble. Uh, but uh, some humility about um, whether there are, you know, one or two minor things. There's lots of things wrong with the American healthcare system. Um, second is, I just want to clarify, the Cato Institute, I, I have an adjunct appointment there. This is not their position. It's Charlie's and my position. It follows on a book that we wrote, Overcharged, Why Americans Pay Too Much for Healthcare. Uh, if you go to overchargeforhealthcare.com, you can read a couple of chapters for free. We talk a lot about why we don't think Medicare for All um, is going to improve things and has good reasons for thinking that it'll make it worse. Third is the short version is there's a role for insurance, but we're using it wrong. And the way we use it makes insurance companies the customers that healthcare providers worry about satisfying rather than the ordinary Americans who are the patients. And that's part of the, a big part of the reason why healthcare is so expensive uh, and so hard to understand. It's very hard to get good information about whether your doctor is any good and whether your hospital is any good. Um, 
Um, and a lot of those things we think would be improved, not everything, but a lot of things by a more consumer focused system that reserved insurance for catastrophes the same way we see it used in other sectors of the economy. So I'll stop there. And, and I'm so very humble that uh, all I'm going to say is yeah, that that's right. And I, I, I think as a country, it would be nice if we had affordable and accessible health care and countries have done it lots of different ways. Um, and I you know, can't begin to figure out which one would work best here. Um, but I, I, I maybe go a step further. Um, you know, when, when I was um, thinking about th- this 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 conversation, I was trying to think, well, where do I put myself? I mean, I, I don't want to say exactly I'm a progressive. That's now got a bunch of sort of policies attached to it that I may not be fully on board with. I'm sort of a liberal, I guess, you know, in the classic sense. Um, I not have some conservative. Scott, you are a liberal, but not a classical liberal. Not, well, I mean, it is, it's a building very much in the, in the importance of individual, you know, agency and 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 sort of individual autonomy. Um, but I think I've decided that I'm going to I'm going to try and have my own little ideology, which I'm going to call pragmatic egalitarianism. Um, and and the fundamental point of it is that I think all of our problems we've talked about, from the problem of how do we deliver healthcare and why we don't deliver healthcare, through our failed government response to a lot of the political divisions that we've seen in the response, is um, driven by the extreme income inequality that in David and my lifetime has arisen in the United States. You know, in 1956 when I was born, we had the the, the smallest difference between the top and the bottom um, in our history. And and now we've got got about just the biggest. And that is, you know, from health terms, you can look at the WHO Commission on Social Determinants and that whole social epidemiology idea. You can look at it in terms of, you know, Raj Chetty and opportunity and and, and changes in social mobility. You can look at it in terms of, you know, the corrosive effects on politics. Michael Sandel has a great book about elitism um, and and and, and, and sort of despair and uh, humiliation, all of which just points to the ways in which we're failing to just pragmatically solve solvable problems. Um, and in part, that's because I, in, in some fundamental sense, we're enormously overstressed and enormously um, vulnerable and angry for a lot of people and, and unable to step back from those extremes. Um, and, you know, a lot of what, what egalitarianism means or equity means in policy terms is shifting resources back towards the middle class and people below the level of the middle class. It means more progressive taxation, but it also means paying more, you know, pay, putting more government money into health, into reducing health care costs, final health care costs for, um, you know, people who otherwise can't can't afford it. It also goes into more housing and infrastructure and better schooling and lower priced college and all sorts of other things. I mean, it's it's hard in a complex system to figure out the single way forward. But overall, healthcare is a good example. Like if we can't find a way to make healthcare affordable and accessible to the to the to the mass of American people, um, and particularly to people on the lower edges um, in, in greatest need, it's a fundamental problem of our delivery system for social goods. And you know, to me, I think we if we're going to follow a single poll star, it's well, let's try and make social goods more equitably available to a greater number of people by whatever government leaders we have. So let me just add to that. I, I think it's very important we focus on the cost of healthcare as the driver and the not just the level, but the rate of increase as well, because they're distinct phenomena as important drivers of many of the problems that Scott has alluded to, not all of them. Um, but you know, you can't use an insurance system to solve the cost of healthcare problem. Uh, 
unless you're going to use the insurance system to impose very dramatic restraints. And historically, we haven't been willing to do that. Okay, now you can say, well, that's because of all those awful special interests. Uh, but the argument Charlie and I make in the book, uh, as well as in the short piece, is if you think the special interests are powerful now, wait till the, it's life or death for the entire population that they're negotiating over in, with Congress by making campaign contributions, uh, as opposed to you know just the smaller slices that they have to deal with on a state by state basis. So Louis Reinhardt, who was uh, I think would go well beyond pragmatic egalitarianism. I think it's fair to say, Scott, would you agree with me on that? Louis Reinhardt said, "I'm not in favor of Medicare for all because I basically don't believe that we can do it in the United States because the people who are getting rich off the current system are also the people who are telling Congress what to do about the current system, and they're not going to volunteer to have their money cut. Uh, and so an important part of the reason why Charlie and I are pushing for more individual control of healthcare and reserving insurance for catastrophes is because we think that's a driver to make people more responsive that are vendors, because I'll just call them that. They're not providers, they're vendors uh, of services. Uh, it'll cause them to reconfigure what they're offering, make more transparent what the costs are, just the same way we see in other sectors of the economy. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, you should expect neurosurgery to be advertised on street corners. Um, and, you know, the, the there's a famous far side cartoon, a uh, guy leaning in a, a doctor's outfit leaning against uh, the window, and it says, neurosurgery, $300, the works, right? No, that's not how this is going to, to, to sort itself out, right? But the, the broader point is the current system isn't working, and we need to try something different. And I think Scott and I disagree on the details of that. But there's broad agreement that the system is too expensive, doesn't cover enough people, and doesn't do a very good job delivering consistent high-quality care. Thank you for that. I uh, couldn't, couldn't peg you for a specific uh, endorsement of proposal. It's okay. Um, I, I think I think that's that's a really helpful way to think about uh, healthcare. And kind of maybe we lost sometimes, the, the, like Scott said, the, the, what is the shining star? Where are we heading towards? What's the North Star? And uh, moving to another issue of kind of like, what is the role of government in you know th- this pandemic is there's been a lot of discussion and over this over the spring and summer and now again with a kind of transition announcement about the defense production act and this kind of ability of government to step in and you know produce and should the government be in the business of producing pp i think there's a wide agreement that the national stockpile should be fully supplied but is that the cor- the correct lever to get there and um, i think uh, this is going to be another one of those agreement points you know yeah, i saw I, that in the in the biden you know proposal that they're they're going to invoke the defense production act and i i ultimately having tried to look at that for the chapter i wrote for our assessment i still don't really understand what they're talking about <laughs> i mean the defense production act says yeah you could nationalize an industry but you can also make all the contracts you want um short term long term you can invest in mach- you can give loans you can help people invest in machinery etc cetera, etc cetera. like there's lots of things you can do and the thing and of course you can coordinate you can jump contracts to the front of the line and say you know send this to there whether it's a supply you know a, a component part you know latex or whether it's you know the the mask itself but all that presupposes that you have a, an understanding of the market that you're trying to control and that's what was missing you know Jared Kushner's consultants in a room just didn't know who made uh, you know same thing we're living in a global economy whoever in America starts producing masks today will be unable to compete with the Chinese when this is all over you know if they ramp up production they're going to be undersold so that's where contracts come in the government contract it says well we have a we have a a stockpile it's uh, it's 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 empty so we're going to agree to buy all your production for the next 10 years at a certain price. And that way they can capitalize their investment
investment, they can build in, they can make the mass and they won't go bankrupt. But it's got nothing to do with the government taking over, just the government being an intelligent consumer and potentially being a bit of a traffic cop in making sure that and and helping the states coordinate so that we don't have price war. Yeah. So look, I think the, the utility of the act is at its highest when you've got a company that doesn't want to play ball. Uh, and you have a very large hammer with which to motivate them to accept whatever terms you wish to impose on them. And that the the traffic cop uh, and you know line jumping is sort of all secondary to that credible threat. And that was not the case here. That was not what was the source of the problem. It was not the driver of the ongoing supply problems. Right? We had a huge shock in demand. We'd under reserved. We have you know remarkably efficient supply chains that produce just in time, just what is needed and not one thing more. Uh, And, you know, we reward companies that don't have things lying around just in case there might be the pandemic of the century hitting. Uh, And so you shouldn't be surprised when there's a huge shock in demand that you're going to have short-term supply problems. How you finesse that, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a hurricane that hits the Gulf Coast uh, or COVID that hits the entire country with some parts of it sooner than others, uh, is a separate question, but you're not going to be able to magic up, you know, masks uh, just because you announced the words of the statute. Um, I think the broader issue is the government does not have a long history of running things itself uh, in ways that are not prone to all of the problems that we've seen as well, right? So, you know, you can pick your government-run enterprise uh, or you can compare it to what's much more common, uh, which is governmental procurement from private firms. And there's no shortage of fraud, waste, and abuse in both of those. uh, And all of those result in oversight hearings. So I completely agree with Scott that if we want a big supply of this stuff, we should have cut a long-term contract for it five years ago or maybe six months ago, right? And that's a good way to guarantee that someone who's going to invest in doing this will be able to recover the money that they're going to invest. But I can also guarantee you if you sign a 10-year contract, five years from now, there'll be an oversight hearing about why is the government stockpiling masks next to mohair uh, and helium and all of the other things that, you know, are the favorite punching bags of the people who don't like government waste. So that's the problem that we need to navigate around. Uh, so I'll stop. I, I have, I, we're just about time. And I, I have one more question. I, I think for um, someone who would come in and maybe read your bios and or maybe kind of, you know, only look at the top line executive summary uh, of the, the, the reports that you each co-authored. And the, the, the amount of agreement is, correct me if I'm wrong, it, it's surprising and it's heartening in a sense, right? Like the goals are shared and we don't have to agree with every single policy proposal, but there's a, a I think in a divided time, this is a unique time of having um, good faith actors agreeing on, you know, shared purpose. And I wonder if you have any idea on how that can expand to, you know, policy or, 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 or a coalition building specifically, you know, kind of when I was thinking about this conversation, I was thinking about how liberal progressive group found an ally in libertarian groups when it came to drug policy, harm reduction and criminal justice reform. And do, does that kind of coalition, is there an opportunity here in terms of uh, the liberal egalitarianism and um, the um, libertarian um, crowds to, to, to come together and, you know, achieve these better management, these uh, change in cost of healthcare, the, the, the goals that we talked about today? And this will be our, our final question. Scott, you want to go first? Well, you know, I, I'm always 
disheartened when, I mean, put it another way, what, what depresses me is that often pragmatic questions are redefined as questions of ideology or philosophy, or, you know, we, we ask ourselves, you know, what, what philosophy can I, can, I have to decide whether this particular solution is consistent with the philosophical position. Well, I'm a, as I say, I'm a pragmatist. Like, what I'd like to know is, is this particular, you know, proposition consistent with maybe solving the problem? Um, and, to, you know, to that extent, I think, you know, for example, if you take the, the, the alignment on, on criminal justice, you know, I think, I think libertarians and, and people like me were alike aware that we were spending a huge amount of money causing a huge amount of harm and not getting much value out of it. And while all of us would say crime is a problem and so on, we're not sure that drug crime is actually the social problem ideology has made it out to be. So if you start with those sort of factual points of factual agreement, you at least have the basis for, dis- you, you have a basis for defining a problem and defining a problem in some sensible way is always the precondition to start to find policies that might respond to the problem. So let me sound a, a minor dissenting note to that. I think that's the promise. The difficulty um, is whether uh, Scott and I are representative of a larger cohort of people or are the sort of odd one-offs that you'll find among law professors uh, and people like that who are concerned with data and facts and, you know, what do we know about the world? The the reality is that fights about uh, health policy uh, quickly become politicized and become tribal. Uh, and that has unfortunately happened to COVID as well, right? So uh, on the one hand, you've got... Um, you know, uh, the administration uh, that, you know, poo-poo's masks and says, uh, we're turning the corner. Uh, And on the other hand, you've got uh, Governor Cuomo today basically saying, I don't want uh, anybody to take a vaccine uh, that was approved by the Trump FDA. Um, And it seems to me neither of those are helpful statements, but they represent each of them a far larger group uh, than Scott and I represent. Uh, So although I do think there's a coalition to be had, the question is, will we be outvoted? And maybe I should say it is a cultural problem ultimately. I mean, both liberals, I mean, all sides, as soon as they put on their ideological glasses, stop seeing important stuff. And they start a lot of stuff that isn't there. Um, And you, I mean, I can speak as somebody on the left, like so much stuff that comes out. I'm thinking like, there's, I don't understand the empirical basis for that. Why would that work? I know everybody likes it now, but why would we spend our time on that? And I, I I do hope that at a certain point, weariness with failure makes people, you know, beyond the law professoriate, more interested in trying to work with people who might know stuff they don't know, might have insights they don't have, and who might bring to bear resources that that are enough to tip the balance to a solution. Be wary of failure, folks. And this is our um, time. Thank you so much to our guests and for all of you for listening. Um, Thank you very much for being here today. Uh, We will be broadcasting here on Twitter every Tuesday and Thursday at noon uh, Eastern time. Just go to at phlawwatch or search hashtag COVID law briefing. Recordings are available on the Public Health Law Watch website and the show will be archived um, by the Weekend Health Law Podcast at uh, twihl.com. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe and thank you again.